Hi there, my name is Amanda Poole Walsh and I'm the founder of Astrology Hub and I am really excited about today's episode, mostly because Henry Seltzer is a legend, a pioneer in the field of astrology and a true gift for all of us to be able to learn from, but also because he's offering a really generous gift to our podcast listeners. You can go right now to astrologyhub.com slash Eris, E-R-I-S, to download this gift now. And without giving too much away about what it really is, it's really best for you to listen till the end to get a full appreciation of how awesome this gift is. But here's a little clue. The personalized report is going to give you insights into aspects of your inner feminine warrior and the areas of life that you are uniquely designed to really take a stand for. Maybe it's the environment or endangered animals. Maybe it's the children or elderly but mainly it's focused on whether and where you're being called to protect the innocence on this planet with your feminine energy. You'll be able to find out in detail with today's special gift. So again, you can go to astrologyhub.com slash Eris and get this free gift now. In today's episode, we also cover really interesting ground that will help any of you who are going through really difficult transits right now. For those of you who don't know Henry, here's a little more about him. Henry has been an astrologer for more than 30 years. His acclaimed publications include The Tenth Planet, about the recently discovered dwarf planet Eris, and the Time Passages astrology software. Lately, he's been researching the three recently discovered and officially named Kuiper Belt objects, Eris, Makemake, and Haumea. Henry carries on an active astrological counseling practice in Santa Cruz, California. So enjoy this dynamic and thought-provoking episode and make sure you listen till the end to find out more about your free report. Okay, Henry. So I've known you for a while and I've always been impressed by your work and your dedication to astrology. And I know that you started out as an undergraduate at MIT which has a reputation for being all science and technology and engineering. How in the world did you get from there to astrology? Well, I can answer that, actually, because um, I had an epiphany moment at the end of high school when I'd already applied and been accepted to MIT. And I was a physics major uh, going into MIT, and I thought science was just um, the greatest thing, you know, since sliced toast. And uh, I was also very interested, though, in poetry and the humanities. And I started trying to discern for myself, what's the difference between the soft sciences and the hard sciences, really? And I finally just came to something very simple, which is, oh, in the soft sciences, there's just like a ton more variables to really describe the human condition, to really describe a symphony, to really describe what's going on at at a psychological level. Just it's, it's not, it's not hard and fast, you know, like, like the simple mathematics of Physics, even though the mathematics is not that simple, it still kind of follows a certain prescribed track. And that was, that was an interesting moment for me. And I, I wound up uh, majoring in poetry and English at MIT. I have a Bachelor of Science degree from MIT in humanities. So I departed from my science, <laughs> departed from pure science. Okay. Well, that sounds like an excellent start. You found a way t- to work with both. So Henry, you are one of the gems in the astrological community with over 30 years of experience practicing astrology professionally. And so Donna and I would know, I would love to know, and I'm sure our audience wonders this from time to time as well. Do you have any theories of how astrology might actually work? Like, why does it work? That's a really legitimate question, isn't it? 
And, you know, um, I've got a couple of different answers. One of my stock answers on that is it's a mystery. And <clears throat> I think that people that try to confuse the physical world with what's happening at a mystical symbolic level, as we can read in the planets, as we can read, for example, in tarot cards as well, right? The tarot cards are shuffled. They come down. They describe a certain setting and a certain situation. They're very descriptive. You know, they're very powerfully um, evocative symbols. How does that work? How the heck? I mean, because a reading is, in my experience, very often descriptive of the situation, the human situation that the person is in. So I, I kind of think of it as, um, you know, as somebody's born and, and, and we throw the runes or we throw the planets in a certain pattern. And then we read that pattern in a divinatory way. And we say, oh, this is this is a great soul or this is what's happening, you know, with this person. They're going to be multivariant or they're going to be environmentally conscious and, and, and work towards for the earth, you know. And, and we say those things based on our understanding of the symbols. And to me, it's a very mystical thing. I, I look back to, um, there's a book by Jeff Cornelius, which is fantastic in this regard, called The Moment of Astrology. I'm sure you guys are familiar with it. And basically, he says it's a divinatory science. He says, you can use the chart of the birth, and it's very informative, but he says you can also use, and as in horror astrology, the chart of the moment. You can just say, let's see what the stars have to tell us at this moment when you're asking this poignant question. And, um, you know, so there's a lot of um, magic to it is what I, I, I finally, in, in the end, believe. I do have another answer. <laughs> and that other answer involves uh, other dimensions of, phys of the physical world that we're completely blind to, which, which is... Um, you know, in string theory, they have 11 dimensions in the math. So what they say is they say, well, of course, three dimensions, we know what those are. And then maybe the fourth dimension is time. And the rest of these other seven dimensions are kind of just rolled up on themselves. They, they don't really have any substance in the real world at all. They're just in the math. And of course, I question that and say, well, maybe there are other dimensional realities beyond this reality. Maybe we're part of a tapestry if we could see the whole thing that includes seven more dimensions that somehow everything interrelates in a symbolic way in a way that makes sense of course that's what we practitioners find that it's a symbolic level of reality that is I, I believe just pure magic you know and and I just like to say working with astrology it just gives us a much better picture of what's really going on that there's magic afoot that the soul is real that angels are about us <laughs> you know, one way or another. <laughs> the implicate order, so to speak. So Henry, what about, you know, all the people out there that feel disconnected from a deeper sense of meaning or purpose, or like what you just talked about, the magic in the world? How has practicing astrology helped to reinforce for you the truth of that reality, the truth of the magic, the truth of the, the destiny of a soul, or the, even the destiny of this world or this dimension? Well, if you think about it, it really is magic and it really is pointing to all kinds of things that we can really utilize in our modern materialistic worldview. I think the, the worldview being so materialistic with, you could almost say, in the modern era, uh, the death of God, you know, they talk about that, um, that we're um, in a way abandoning some of the uh, earlier institutions that were the life breath of, of the society, the culture, such as Christianity. But we don't, we've somehow transcended that simplistic attitude and we have maybe more now a universalist I, I call it the universe I mean a lot of people call it various different things you know and you could call it God too you could call it goddess but to call it the universe to me is just kind of a way of talking about that there is this multi-dimensional 
um, aspect to our reality that once we tune into it and how else could astrology work? You know, to me, the astrology is the evidence. You know, uh, Rick Tarnas likes to say astrology is uh, the universe speaking back to us. You know, not only are we ensouled, which we finally realized in the postmodern era, that man or woman is ensouled in this maybe uh, utterly materialistic universe. But on the other hand, maybe the universe itself isn't sold as well. And so, I mean, this is all from Cosmos and Psyche, his terrific book on kind of the underpinnings of astrology in a way, you know, and uh, showing how it's significant in terms of historical periods, right? But, um, <clears throat> you know, I just think it's, it's wonderful to get that evidence coming back at you that is there, there is another level to the universe. There is another level to this, this life we have and that everything is meaningful, you know, no such thing as a chance encounter, no such thing as a test that you survived that was not a coincidence, you know, somehow you needed that. Uh, even, you know, the difficult transits can be thought of as learning experiences that are very valuable. And that's what builds character, isn't it? So, I mean, we have a way of looking at things that in instead of just saying, oh God, everything's a mess, my house burned down and my uh, my, my bank account is empty. My, I lost my job. You know, at the, at the moment of losing the job, a lot of times people say, oh my God, what am I going to do? I lost my job. And then 10 years later, they say, that was the day. <laughs> that was the best day of my life when I lost my job, you know? So it's a, a question of perspective and understanding that everything is, serves to further, that there is a spiritual component, I believe, to everything that happens to us. And, you know, just, it gives us a, a way of, in this, in this modern world where we don't often have models of spirit that that are really viable in the olden sense, you know, the, the old institutions of religion, that we have a way of, of connecting to a spiritual source that's really within us, deep within us, and that comes through nature and comes through every experience we have, you know, when we look for it, when we're aware of it, when we know what to look for. That's such a beautiful picture of reality, you know, looking up and finding hope in what you see. I think it's a sustaining thing, and I'm so grateful that you've been creating all these tools for people to be able to use astrology in their own lives, even if they aren't familiar with how to do astrology themselves. So can you talk about a little bit about the programs and the tools that you've made available on, there's an app for that. You're one of the people who's been leading the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, I, that was the basis of Time Passages was not so much, um, how can I make a product? Most software companies are sort of all about how can I make a product and sell that product and make a living at it, which is, of course, part of the story. But the other part of the story is, um, how can I use my computer skills in a way that is meaningful and really helpful? And, and what does the society need to begin to turn this corner? Because here we are, um, Carolyn Casey calls it, you know, dinosaurs lumbering for the edge of the cliff, you know, and what can we do to prevent that? And to me, it's a consciousness thing. And so uh, in astrology, is one way to make a new consciousness become available. And then the question becomes, as such a superstition against astrology, the question becomes, how can we make it really clear to people? How can we make it really meaningful? And that's why I created Time Passages, to, to make it with good interpretations of these uh, astrological components of their natal chart or their transits, to make it really clear to people that, yes, this is something that speaks to them. And, and there is a value to astrology. And then the question becomes, okay, astrology works, which we all recognize, and many, many, many people are beginning to recognize more and more. And then the other question becomes, how the heck does it work? And to me, that's the answer is magic. And the answer is open your eyes to uh, more dimensions of reality than you were willing to admit before. 
You know, Henry, uh, we love your software so much because of that, because of the accessibility, because of the ease when you read a report. You know, I recently ran a report for me and my sweetheart. And then together, we got to go through it and, and marvel at the accuracy. And, and really, it was a, an amazing opportunity for us to connect over our astrology. You know, it's uh, so many things that we already inherently knew, but then to see it reflected back to us, from this, you know, software based on our birth time and location is like, that's magic, you know, and that's magic that we got to share together. Henry, you're doing a lot of work with the, the feminine, the feminine and the, what do we want to say, resurgence of, um, of feminine, I don't even like to call it power, it's more like feminine remembering of our strength and remembering of the value that we hold in society and holding ourselves accountable to bringing that value forward. Tell us about your work with the feminine and how astrology is informing so much and and reflecting back to us these shifts that we're all witnessing. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because, of course, that's the crux of my research lately. And it all began when they said Pluto's a dwarf. They said Pluto's still a planet. Don't worry. (laughs) But now it's called a dwarf planet because we have a special category for these Kuiper Belt objects And we want to distinguish them from the rest of the planets through Neptune because, well, those are real planets and these are kind of, there's a lot of them. And we don't want the number of planets to keep going up astronomically, (laughs) so to speak. Uh, Now we have 10, now we have 20, now we have, oh, 25, this year 25. Next year we'll have 29 planets. You know, it's, it made it, um, it's, it shows how much the solar system is part of our zeitgeist, you know, that they really, the astronomers were looking more to the social implications than they were to any kind of um, category that made sense, they'd always considered Pluto a planet. I mean, in the sense that it's spherical, it has a gravity to it. It's, it's not big compared to planets, all the, compared to the other planets, but it's, it's pretty darn big out there, you know, and it is going around the sun, and so it's a planet. Now, <clears throat> Eurus, uh, the next planet that was mentioned, that was discovered, which was triggering this whole debate amongst the astronomers, that planet, too, um, you know, it's about the same size as Pluto. It's it's more massive, actually, and brighter than Pluto. So, you know, really um, more of a dominant factor if you if you just consider the physical characteristics in the Kuiper Belt and a 556-year orbit, which is a lot slower, almost about twice as much as Pluto. And we keep finding more planets, and we keep finding them twice. I mean, we keep finding their um, periods to be twice what they were. You know, like not exactly, but it, it comes to that. You know, it's it's pretty interesting when you sort out all the periods of the planets that were already discovered, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. <clears throat> and this one, again, doubles the, the period of Pluto. So um, I just got excited about the idea that not so much we had a dwarf planet out there, because Pluto is also designated a dwarf planet. I mean, it's certainly powerful in charts. We, we're not going to give up on working with Pluto in charts because it's considered a dwarf. So that's what, what that, this is really putting back my um, science hat on, that I just felt that, you know, this was absolutely a planet, Eris. What was, what was the message of this planet? And it was a, a feminine warrior because she was the sister of, of the god of war in Greek mythology. So that was my starting point. Plus, actually, the nickname before they uh, decided on Eris as a name was Xena, which is a warrior princess. So, you know, I, I just saw this sort of militant feminine. And then, of course, that fits very nicely with what we know that there's been an overbalance of, of the patriarchy uh, in, in Western history all this time. And then <clears throat> gradually women are beginning to get the vote 
back and beginning to get power back and it's still not quite <clears throat> the same number of you know um there's there's a statistic that on wall street women that i mean companies that have women in the executive you know in the board women on the board or women ceos do better <laughs> you know they they actually are more stable and more um you know uh, they play nice with other companies go figure right so anyway that was very interesting to me to see the resurgent feminine as part of this mythology and part of this uh, potentially this is astrological archetype that was coming along and then i started researching and researching and researching and i couldn't find a feminist leader of the past two or three hundred years that didn't have strong ears so then i began to realize oh this is this is very significant in charts it's a warrior all right but it's a feminine warrior which means a little different than a masculine warrior and fighting for what they most deeply believe is what i finally came to that's why i finally came to a feminine warrior uh in support of soul intention similarly the way we regard pluto as being a soul connected uh, archetype to the depths so going to the depths because it's way out there just like pluto Henry, it's my understanding that Eris has been in the zodiac sign of Aries since the 1920s, and it's going to be there for, what, another 20, 30 years? So what do you think is the significance of the discovery, in air quotes, of the planet Eris um, in a very martial, Mars-ruled sign of Aries? Well, that's a good point. Um, you know, one thing about this discovery that's quite interesting is that because Eris is as the same size as Pluto and brighter, much brighter, there's no reason why Eris would not have been discovered before Pluto or simultaneously with Pluto, except that the fact that Eris was at the far point of her orbit. So this is a very elliptical orbit, and um, it's actually at the furthest point in Aries. And so uh, it takes 120 years, as you were alluding to, to go through Aries. So it, it's very interesting in a number of ways. I mean, you know, this is a new discovery in the 21st century, Aries is a beginning kind of a thing, a beginning sign, you know, the beginning of a new wave of planetary discoveries, perhaps. It's also, of course, quite interesting that she was the sister of the war god, namely Aries, in Greek mythology, and discovered in the sign of Aries. But, you know, a lot of my research goes back further than that. Research into figures such as John Muir, who was a strong environmentalist of the 1800s, and uh, <clears throat> D.H. Lawrence, even, as Eris and Pisces. So um, a lot of my research, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to indicate that it's any less of a feminine warrior when it's in these earlier signs. I've, I've seen Pisces, I've seen Aquarius, you know, if you go back farther. Uh, and so I, I looked at Copernicus. I wound up looking at many of the paradigm shifters also, people that came along and they've got this maverick sensibility like Einstein. Einstein had Eris in the 10th house near his son. And when Eris crossed his son, which was in 1905 when he was still a young man, forget exactly his birth year. That was the year that he made all his significant uh, d discoveries and pronouncements. At the beginning of this period, he was sort of unknown. He was a patent clerk uh, working in, uh, in Switzerland. And then uh, he started publishing these articles in, in leading scientific journals, four articles that kind of shook up mod modern science, a photoelectric effect for which he won the Nobel Prize. And also uh, the paper that gave the equation E equals MC squared, a famous uh, way of looking at things, and then also uh, the beginning of relativity, the first the first papers on relativity. So, you know, this was like overturning modern science, and it was just when Eris was on a sun degree. So that's when I began to realize also that even the transits of Eris could be important and could indicate sort of this maverick struggle against 
the it's not against the establishment exactly, but it's it's forging a new territory as the paradigm shifters do, as these people like Newton and Copernicus and all the people you can think of down through history that have made these scientific breakthroughs, they have strong eras, which makes sense because they're not just sitting back and saying, oh, let's go with the status quo. Let's just be a professor and talk about what is. No, they're saying, let's find a breakthrough. Let's find a new way of seeing things. And so I think it's fascinating. And if Eris is in Aries and that's as far away from the sun as it's going to get, that means that for the next cycle, it's getting closer every year, year after year. If you go 250 years into the future, which is quite a while, (laughs) which we don't usually think of, um, you're going to find that Eris and Pluto are at the same distance from the Earth and are moving at the same speed through charts. So that changes the whole transit picture at that point. But right now, Eris is, is only gaining a quarter of a degree a year. With the retrogradation, it does move back and forth uh, because of the motion of the Earth relative, you know, so that uh, you see it against different stars and it seems to move backwards, as we know about uh, retrograde planets. So it does move a degree or two in each direction, back and forth, back and forth. It's still at 23 degrees um, when on one of its, you know, it's, it, it stays at 23 for a while because it could be back to it or it could be, you know, a while ago it was going forward into it. So this 23 degree mark of Eris is even from... Uh, well, from the candidacy of Bernie Sanders, for example, it was 23 degrees in, in May of uh, 2017. So, Henry, you referred to people with strong heiress in their chart as paradigm shifters. Would you say to the, to the listeners that if they have heiress strongly placed in their chart, that they may be a part of this group that we call paradigm shifters? And how would they know? What, what does a strong placement mean? And how would someone find out if that's them? You know, that does bring Chiron into the picture. Oftentimes, I have found over and over again in, in, in working with clients that they might have a very strong placement of ears and they might be acting upon it. You know, you, you might talk to somebody that's very confident and they're going out and, and being, you know, um, a breakthrough in one way or another. A good example really is Bernie Sanders, who has it, uh, let's see, um, opposite Mercury and, and partile uh, trine with Pluto, I think it is. And, you know, he's somebody that has a lot of stamina and he goes out there and makes it happen. You know, he's a perfect exemplar of Eris. He's, he's somebody that's fighting the good fight for what he believes in and damn the torpedoes. And he's just going to keep doing it no matter what anybody else might have to say about it. You know, he's not, he's not waiting to hear how well accepted he is. He's saying, this is my truth. So that's, that's somebody that is acting on their Eris. But, you know, a lot of times uh, I talk to clients, especially in client work, they're, look, they're searching, they're trying to figure out what's going on. You know, you can't really imagine Bernie Sanders calling up and saying, tell me about my chart. What am I supposed to be doing, right? It's, it's not kind of like that. So um, these people that I, that I encounter that have a strong iris, because not everybody does, but, you know, that have a strong iris, and I say, oh, you're a powerhouse. You can make things happen. You go for something, and it's going to happen. And they say, well, yes, that's true, but I don't really know what to go for. And, and they say, I've got these doubts, and I'm not really that great, and who am I to be so great, which is the Marianne Williamson quote, like, who, who are you? not to be as great as you could be, you know. And I, I, I usually at that point start talking about the Chiron because I think a lot of times that reflects the places where we have doubts, um, where we have maybe a childhood experiences, trauma that left its mark and left us questioning, am I worthwhile? You know, am, do I have it? Do I have the confidence to do this? Or, or do I just always say no? <laughs> so anyway, um, that's what comes up for me. And I, I'm glad you brought it up in the context of what are people supposed to be up to, because I believe that getting in touch 
with what you're meant to do is really the secret of life. And that if you can find that and anything that leads to that, including the placement of the North Node, of course, which is sort of a destiny channel in your, in your chart. But Eris is a very powerful indicator. It's going to be a house that's important to you. Eris with Mercury is a writer. Uh, Eris with Saturn, they're always defending the underdog. They want justice. They want to see the society improve. Eris with anything, Eris with Venus is an appreciator of that maverick energy. So it, it really, any, any planet it touches, it illuminates in a certain way that has to do with soul intention. And if you can kind of suss out uh, what that is for you, and I, it's like I say, Eris can be a, a guide to that. I think that's the secret of life because then you're, you're doing what you're supposed to do. You know, you're, you're happy. You're not a cog in somebody else's machine. You're doing what you feel to be your calling. And that, that's so important. Totally agree and see that as one of the biggest, most valuable, most important gifts of astrology and of understanding your chart and of looking at the charts of the people in your lives. And it really, it, to me, it like gets down to that foundational level of it gives you the point in the meaning of your life. There's nothing more important than that. You know, why are we here? People have been asking that question forever. And, and astrology really does hold keys for that. Now, your studies of Eris was just the beginning for you because you started to branch out into some of the other things that we have been finding in the outer parts of the solar system. Can you talk about some of those? Well, that was, again, um, this kind of scientific bent that I have that has a logical component to it. Just as I first started saying, gee, if Pluto is still a very important astrological archetype, and if Eris is exactly the same astronomical category and the same size and just as important in the Kuiper Belt, arguably more important in the Kuiper Belt, then it's got to be important in charts for astrology. And similarly, they, they have named actually a total of three new uh, bodies out there uh, which is to say, um, Eris is the first one that was discovered. It was considered the 10th planet at the time, which is why I called my book on Eris the 10th planet. They named, the, the astronomers actually named not only Eris as a dwarf planet, but they named two others, which were the two other largest bodies in the Kuiper Belt, besides Eris and Pluto, and those were named after indigenous gods and goddesses. They were named Haumea and Makimaki. So these are strange names, and people don't think of them as very, astrologers don't, typically work with them or think of them as very significant. They, they get fooled by this whole dwarf planet thing, right? They think, oh, those are sort of some other kind of asteroid or something. But I decided if, if Eris definitively proved to myself that Eris is important in charts, as well as Pluto being important in charts, what about these other two? And my first thought was they may have to do with, with nature. They may have to do with connection to nature. And so I started looking at people like John Muir, and he has a very strong placement. And the synastry that John Muir uh, shows with Teddy Roosevelt, who was another environmentalist, uh, environmentalist president at the time in the early 1900s, that shows the Eris and, and Maki Maki really clearly. So, I mean, what I'm finding is um, by looking at both natal positions of, of Eris and, I mean, of uh, Haumea and Maki Maki, and also looking at um, the transiting uh, situation also shows very strongly. So it, it's, very, it's very interesting to see um, it, what, what I found with Haumea is that it's not only a profound connection with nature, but it's a profound spiritual energy as in the connection to nature being a spiritual thing. And it doesn't even have to be the kind of nature that we think of when we talk about, oh, going out to nature and hiking or going to the ocean. It can be a way of um, exploring that kind of spiritual connection to source 
and it really connects to nature at almost a higher level, not necessarily to the woods. And that's the example there is David Bowie, who has Haume all over his chart, very strong. But uh, they would take him into the mountains and he couldn't get him out of the cabin. You know, he would just like be on his computer or something. And so to me, that was very interesting because he has strong Haumea, but he wasn't like a nature boy. So there's, there's more to it than just nature. And it does reveal a certain charisma. You find it in Joseph Campbell, a very charismatic person who is also very dedicated to the idea that mythology shows us nature. Then you find it in the chart of Prince. <laughs> I, I thought about Joni Mitchell and decided she had a certain amount of charisma as well just the other day. And sure enough, she's got a pretty strong position of Palomé as well. You just find it where you're looking for it. I did um, the chart of David White because of the charisma factor and because he wandered the moors as a child. And he absolutely talked about um, how that was an important formative aspect for him. And he writes these poetry, this poetry that's so beautifully connected. He talks about connections. He talks about conversations between parts of nature and parts of, and yourself. You know, you have a conversation with nature all the time. And I wanted to see his chart. And sure enough, he's got a very strong Haumea in his chart. And usually you see Haumea and Makimaki, they can be about 30 degrees apart. And if they're 30 degrees apart, they vary from 20 to 40 degrees uh, with Haumea in the lead in these last couple of centuries. That wouldn't be true if you go back far enough. But right now, Haumea keeps tracking around the zodiac followed by Maki Maki at, at, like I say, 20 to 40 degrees back. And they are often around 30 degrees apart, in which case they've all got the same aspect. <laughs> you know, they've all got different aspects, but they both, they, if they make aspects to personal planets, they both do. So I'm having a little trouble separating them. They're, they have a very similar uh, period also. They're, the period is not that different from Pluto. Uh, Maki Maki is 309 years, and um, I think it's 282 for uh, Haumea. So they actually have um, very similar orbital periods. So we're, this time we're talking about new planetary energies, new archetypes that we can work with, but they have very similar uh, periods and similar to Pluto for that matter. And they're even called Plutoids. So, you know, to me, it's, it's a kind of a whole new uh, area that's being opened up and we're still, I'm still trying to figure it out more precisely, but I, I do have a very clear idea that it's earth issues uh, Maki Maki is the masculine god of the two, and Haumea is the feminine, uh, the creation goddess of Hawaii. And uh, they seem to both have to do with nature and maybe more in a sense of appreciation and just basking in nature and not being so activist for Haumea and a little bit more of an activist slant. So Henry, for those of the people that have been listening and now wondering, okay, do I have strong Eris in my chart? Is it conjunct with a planet that makes it important in my life and how might it show some clues to my purpose. We have an Eris report that you can actually run for yourself and get a printout and get a lot more insights into the Eris placement in your chart. So you can check that out in the show notes. Um, Henry, do you want to tell us any more about the actual report? Sure. Um, it's based on the fact that <clears throat> I was able to come up with interpretations for every a personal planet that Eris is connected to, including Chiron. And so I put those uh, in my book on Eris, which is the 10th planet, but it's also available in the Time Passages software, and it's also available as a report. And so, um, yeah, you can get the software if you have the standard or advanced edition. You can see these aspects in your in your chart when you put your data in. And then on the other hand, we do have this Eris report, which, as you mentioned, uh, it gives the house position, which people love the description of the Eris in the house because it really speaks to them. I had one uh, very well-known astrologer look at it, and she was kind of deadpan while she was looking at it. And then she looked up at me and said, how did you do that? You touched my soul. 
and which was very nice to hear. And, uh, you know, just people seem to find them very, very, um, it speaks to that. The house position of yours is that significant. Henry, what, what questions is it going to answer for people? Well, it does uh, have to do with where you're headed. You know, I mean, the fact that um, you know that you have, it, because it's not only an important house, let's talk about the house position for a second. It's not only an important house, but it's a house connected with your soul intention. So it's a way of kind of, this is to some extent what you have a natural talent for, uh, what you might uh, really feel the reward of working with this particular area, if it's in the 11th house working with groups, if it's in the fifth house working with your own creativity, et cetera. So, I mean, that's, that's been very valuable. And then the connection, like I say, if I ever see Iris with Mercury, I just say you're a writer, you know, just automatically. That's, I just know that uh, with a, you know, with a strong aspect with Iris and Mercury, they, they have that ability to, to write about it, to talk about it. With all these new discoveries out in the Kuiper Belt, and, and I know, Henry, you know they're all being named after creator gods or underworld denizens. What message, what gift are they bringing us right now? Well, that's a very good point. And you raise an interesting question uh, on the theoretical side, which is I've been concentrating on these ones that are officially named by the IAU as quote-unquote planets. Uh, there's plenty of candidates out there that would probably be qualified to be dwarf planets if the IAU was to meet again and to say, let's see how many of these we want to give the name planet to. But they're not interested in that because they've already made their determination about real planets and dwarf planets. And that was the main reason they got to name these more prominent ones. They are the largest ones. So I've been focusing on that. But uh, obviously, um, horror is out there. Um, many other uh, bodies that I, you know, there's so many names. And people are starting to work with them. And they can work with them by looking at the mythology and they can look at, they can work with them by looking at the placements in natal charts and seeing characteristics of the personalities involved, the individuals. So this is very important research. And as far as what uh, that opens up for astrology, um, it's amazing to me that astrology, which has been so codified over so many years and even in the revival of the humanist revival in, in the 1970s, there was still this understanding that there was a basic astrology that included, by that time, of course, Pluto. But, um, you know, now we have all these new bodies out there. And I guess you could just say that uh, there may be a, uh, a new uh, horizon uh, of, uh, of the culture, you know, merging into a, uh, I mean, look how, look how the world is getting smaller and smaller. And look how uh, one of the big issues of our times, pollution and, and global warming is, is avoids borders you know it's it's uh, it's global phenomenon with with uh, the individual country borders don't count you know it's everybody's got to be in the same boat and working together so we are i think in this 21st century coming into a new a new cultural um, understanding of of who we are and what we're up to henry thank you so much for your time for all of the amazing research that you've done for the new frontiers that you're allowing all of us to, to explore within the astrology world, but really within ourselves. Um, you're bringing that to our consciousness and enabling us to explore new pathways and, and even talk about things like you know, being paradigm shifters and, um, and the resurgence of the feminine and all these great things that we got to cover today. So thank you so, so much for everything that you do. And thank you so much for your support of Astrology Hub and for being with us here today. I hope you enjoyed this episode and just a little more information on the free Eris report that is waiting for you to download now. We offered this report during our summit last fall and everyone loved it. 
The feedback was so overwhelmingly positive that I asked Henry if we could offer it again. The report normally retails for $25 and Henry is generously offering it to the Astrology Hub podcast listeners for free. So seriously, take advantage of this. Again, you can go to www.astrologyhub.com slash Eris. Write in your name and email and we will send you the link you need to enter in your birth information. The report will then be automatically delivered to your inbox. Thank you so much for being here with us today. It's been really fun sharing this time with you. And next week, you can look forward to the weekly horoscope episode on Monday, as always, and a very special episode on Thursday designed to answer one of the most common questions we receive. And that question is, can you recommend an astrologer for me to have a reading with? There is no one-size-fits-all answer, and Donna and I go through five steps for you to consider when looking to book a reading with an astrologer so that you can have the best possible experience with astrology. And there will be another amazing free gift to accompany this episode, so make sure you tune in. Remember, when you subscribe to the podcast, you'll get notified whenever a new episode is live so you don't miss a beat. And finally, thank you. Thank you for being here with us today, for being a part of our community, and for making astrology a part of your life. I'll catch you on the next episode. Relationships? Putting your dreams into action. Your ideal career path? What themes are up for you to explore in the coming month? Find out now by downloading Astrology Hub's free lunar cycle calendar for the next month. The calendar gives you the details on the upcoming week's cosmic curriculum, including the theme, mantras, daily aspects, and journal prompts that you can use to work with the energy. Just go to astrologyhub.com slash calendar to get your free lunar cycle calendar now. That's astrologyhub.com slash calendar. Hi, this is Chris Kaplan, the producer of the Astrology Hub podcast. This episode is over, but check the show notes for links to products and services you've heard about during this episode. And if you enjoyed our show, please subscribe and rate using the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts.